Hey, Sound Opinions listeners, if you support us on Patreon, you get to listen to our podcast ad-free on Patreon. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and this week we're talking with screenwriter, director, and now playwright Cameron Crowe. I'm Jim DeRogatis. And I'm Greg Cott. We'll chat about the Broadway adaptation of his film Almost Famous, the famous boombox scene in Say Anything, and more. Let's jump in. Mr. Cott, today our guest is the screenwriter, director of films like Almost Famous, Say Anything, Jerry Maguire, and more, and longtime friend of Sound Opinions. He got his start, though, in our profession, in the trenches, like us. Music criticism and journalism, writing for publications like Cream and Rolling Stone. His experience uh, following Led Zeppelin for Rolling Stone magazine inspired one of our favorite movies, Almost Famous, which he wrote, directed, and won the Oscar for Best Original Screenplay. And most recently, he turned the film into a Broadway musical, which just ended its run in New York. We'll talk to him about his career, the musical, and much more. Let's jump in. We are thrilled to welcome back to Sound Opinions our old buddy Cameron Crowe. Not old as in old, but uh, longtime friend Cameron Crowe. Better way to say it. Exactly. Exactly. Returning uh, fan. Returning Sound Opinions fan. Uh, That's right. Last seen when we screened Almost Famous for a couple thousand people at Millennium Park. Cameron had taped something for us to welcome the crowd. That was a good night, my friend. I remember, and I think my mom was in on that. Your mom uh, was at your house, so she was in the video. Your mom, of course, is the principal in Almost Famous. Uh, She Like like, uh, another uh, lesser director, Martin Scorsese, your mom uh, (laughs) made uh, cameos in in all of your films until her death, sadly. It's true. She would have wanted to be in on this. You know, it's it's her thing. You you tell her you have a new script or something. She's like, what's my part? What am I doing? <laughs> what am I doing? Well, you know, seriously, that's a good place to start because I hadn't realized this. And you've been doing a ton of press for Almost Famous on Broadway. We want to talk to you about the difference between Broadway and, and, and films and the differences between the documentaries you've made and the features. But I think the place to start, Cameron, is with Mom. She used to drag you into San Diego to see musicals. It's true, because we lived across the street from the Old Globe Theater. And, and, you know, I wanted to stay behind and, like, do all the clandestine stuff, like listen to Black Sabbath and, and, yeah, and yeah. so forth. And she would say, you're less than a block away from Shakespeare. We can walk across the street. It's going to be great. You'll brag about this one day. <laughs> so, um, you know, of course, that day came when years later they said, you know, you can open your off-Broadway musical in like Boston or Atlanta or San Diego, the Old Globe. So I said, okay, let's go to the Old Globe. But immediately started to regret it because, you know, you, you, if there's a problem, you don't want it to happen in your old hometown. Oh, yeah. So um, so it kind of upped the stakes a little bit. But she uh, she definitely was the big cheerleader for for doing Almost Famous on stage. So we we actually pulled it off for her. Well, what were your <laughs> memories others? of theater that Im- impacted you as a kid? I mean, did that stuff make any impact on you at all? Like, oh, you know, filtering back into what you're doing now, perhaps? The, the pageantry, Greg, it, it was kind of like, it, it was a version of a concert I would find out later because I, I wasn't going to concerts yet. So, But I would see like, 
you know, f- real fan worship in uh, some of those performances because the Old Globe was patterned after Shakespeare's theater. And so real fans would show up to see these plays. And, you know, they were mostly kind of boring, but um, <laughs> when they when they hit a, a dramatic moment, it was galvanizing. And that was what I took away, that, like, there's a thing that you can do in the theater that just kind of... Um, it happens in real time with real people. And I thought that was kind of explosive and it translated in other ways until we came back to the same theater and and miraculously um, people just kept showing up and we broke all the records and uh, for the old globe. And and the 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 thing that's both typically Alice Crow and um and so her is that she passed away two days before the first audience came in to see this play that she'd been championing for decades, really. Mm. So it was classic, dramatic uh, <laughs> positioning for her exit. She was like, "Okay, I'm going to make sure this uh, this lands." And so the whole the whole cast um, really kind of upped the ante and they were very, it was some powerful performances that happened in San Diego, which we, we tried to bring to Broadway. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what did you think the first time Alice, your mom said, uh, almost famous, the movie should be a Broadway musical. Did you think, you know, mom, what are you smoking crack? What what are you doing? (laughs) A little bit, a little bit, but she, Jim, she would, um, she worked the VCR Mm. like a, like a, (laughs) <laughs> maestro you know she she would like grab stuff off tv with the vcr and she would always be sending me or showing me a neil simon interview mm. or a stephen sondheim documentary so she was always kind of like seeding the land yeah. for something that might happen in that direction but and sondheim was the one that did it for me because i loved the song barcelona that's in company mm. and i thought that was as good as like my favorite singer songwriter songs where you going? Barcelona. Oh. Don't get up. Do you have to? Yes, I have to. Oh. Don't get up. So that was kind of the, the road that took me into like saying, we should do this. Yes, let's do this. And then it was like meeting the people that can teach you a little bit yeah. about it. Well, I have to confess, Cameron, I um, I got to see Almost Famous uh, in, in that initial run uh, at yeah. the Globe, and what a beautiful theater, and it was a great night. Uh, <laughs> why was I in San Diego? I was uh, talking at the Lester Bangs annual right. memorial reading at Grossmont Junior College, which he did not graduate from, but they have a That's star right. on the walk. I don't know if you made it out there to El Cajon, wow. you know, uh, which he would have uh, thought mm-hmm. was rich, I'm sure. Um you know, and, and it was with trepidation. I am allergic to Broadway. There's two kinds of, of great singing, uh, great being relative. Broadway singing, yeah. which is, you know, the blood of the martyrs will water the meadows of France, right? Yeah. yeah and then yeah, there's yeah. what we've devoted our lives to, you and me and Greg, rock singing. Yeah. Right? Um, and I was so happy that Almost Famous didn't devolve into the Broadway singing. It was natural. It, it was more like, you know, reminded me, uh, not that there's anything thematic, it reminded me of Godspell, which I saw as a oh, kid, cool. and it really That's cool. affected me. It was like a bunch of music-loving hippies 
are singing these songs. They weren't doing yeah. the Broadway schmaltz, right? Get in, get out, get the story and get paid. Get paid. Then write the next one. It's always on to the next one. But I am not supposed to make friends. Were you concerned yeah, yeah. at all about that? And how that there were the, you know because like Broadway singers don't think like rock singers. Was I concerned about it? Yeah, that 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 the, the theater people would not get the way to put those songs across. Every minute, every hour, <laughs> every day. How how can I answer in the affirmative any more strongly? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I was I was kind of uh, grumpy about it from time to time because people would be loving it and and I would say like well you know if if the who or something like the who doesn't appear in terms of rock intensity in this show I'm out you know I can't I can't sit here and believe that it's the correct story and and what's great is everybody dug in to understand what the rock thing was and it really began with casting Mm-hmm. Because all the actors would come in and they would start with a song that was from the 70s canon, you know. So they would show their colors immediately about how rock they were. Mm. And some of them would do like some of them would do like Barracuda and things like that, not not knowing I had personal history with heart and, and you know, yeah, it would be a little like, bit. Yes. Yeah. Yes, good choice, you know. Yeah. Or maybe they did know. But um, we tend to winnow out the people that didn't understand or that weren't a true fan of the, the form, you know, which is how we cast the movie, too. Yeah. So it's, it's all music lovers in the cast. And the guy who plays Lester, yeah. uh, who you know, Rob Coletti, Chicago's mm-hmm. Rob Coletti. Columbia College um, grad, yeah. He's, he's just the greatest. He, I feel like he's kind of been a partner for this whole later life for almost famous because mm-hmm. he's 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 such a Lester follower as you know but he's also like deeply in love with music mm-hmm. and is a musician himself so when he gets up there and opens the show and talks about you know Van Morrison or Lou Reed or whatever you feel it you know this is this this actually reminds me quite a bit of Lester himself, you know, who you yeah. you have very vivid memories of, and and I do too. And Philip Seymour Hoffman caught so much of like the inner power and more of Lester. I'm glad you were home. I'm always home. I'm uncool. Me too. You're doing great. Yeah. The only true currency in this bankrupt world is what you share with someone else when you're uncool. Rob Coletti, as soon as he walked in to do the audition for us, I felt the Lester's warmth, mm. you know, and and the warmth that was surprising to me when I met him. And uh, you know about it. And, yeah. and in stuff you're working on, that that warmth and that heart is very present, which is great. So I, I love that there's a warm kind of version of Lester, who's also funny and corrosive, that opens the show basically by saying, it's over. Yeah, <laughs> you know what you loved about music is over. It's the first lines of the of the musical. It's like it's over. Right. And what I what I love is it ends with William Miller saying, "What do you love about music?" And Russell Hammond says, "To begin with, right, everything. everything. So I just like the shape of like it's over. 
its beginning. Mm-hmm. And, and that's kind of the life of the music fan, you know, yeah. and, and, and the ride you take with it. So anyway, to over-answer the no, question. No, no, yeah, I, well, I, can, I can see that. that. That's worried. what it is. That, that's a great way of saying it. And I think, you know, I, I think part of the problem with Broadway style singing is, you know, a lot of it's about exposition. You've got to explain it. It's almost, the, there's so much emphasis on the words yeah. that the music sometimes gets short shrift. But I was curious, um, it's, da- it's a daunting hill to climb, uh, as us rock lovers know. So I'm just wondering if you'd have any examples in your catalog of stuff that this was a, a musical that did rock justice on Broadway or anywhere, the plan. you know, regional theater, wherever you may have seen it. Did, yeah. you have any, were there any inspirations like that in, in, as you were kind of formulating this? Yeah, Greg, the thing that I said in the very first meeting about this was my dream would be that like there'd be a high school production Mm. version of Almost Famous that if you're 15 or 16, you're psyched to put on. And I, I, that's my real dream, really, that it lives like like that. Because I remember the plays that we would we would play at my schools and they it was like guys and dolls and stuff like that. So I thought like, wow, wouldn't it be cool if Almost Famous was in a gymnasium and they, you know, it was their, <laughs> their spring show at, at a high school or, you know. San Diego high school or something would be amazing. So the thing is like, can a Broadway audience take a show that handles music more as a concert than as a showy event? You know what I mean? Can it be a little bit of both? And can people that love theater come and see the show and and eventually hold hands with rock fans, music fans? And they do by the end of the show, you know, we end with a, with a, reprise a fever dog and every night in san diego and also in in new york on broadway everybody's standing so they've kind of like and and they they're rocking out with stillwater who <laughs> plays live which is really cool so you know it's ambitious and when we first started putting the show on some of the the people that came to see it you know who were interested the og theater people you know, they they had to get tenderized for it because they're kind of not used to seeing, you know, Jeff Beebe and Stillwater doing the doing the Midwestern hard rock thing, you know. <laughs> yeah. But now I think it's it's settled in in a great way. And, and people they know there's an ending that's about kind of there's a there's a curtain bow that happens at the end of the show that's really exciting. And all the cast appear in it every character gets to sing part of fever dog (laughs) and it kind of brings everything together and people now know that that's coming because when when the show is over they don't leave they're ready for this Mm. curtain call of fever dog which is i'm maybe proudest of right after maybe it'll end up in a high school sometime you you that that is a great thought it really is you you handled that so deftly my friend um tenderized they needed to be tenderized um you know there's (laughs) we're all we're all critics uh, or toughened we're all toughened toughened, yeah we're we're all critics we're all journalists the new york uh, theater press was pretty brutal and yet people are loving the show and coming to the show night after night How, how did that how did that feel i mean you've had 
bad reviews for movies before. It must be <laughs> must be similar. But I mean, well, he was like, listening to Black Sabbath records at the Critic Savage, and millions of kids bought it and were influenced by it to, for decades later. Yeah, well, he's telling Rolling Stone, "I'm going to go on the road with this guy Peter Frampton," and they're like, oh, he's nothing. He's a teeny bopper, right? You know, or uh, I mean, you've been down this road before, but geez, man, I was. I, I was I'm the, crying I'm the for master, you. I'm the master of reality of Broadway shows right now. You know, <laughs> the fans know. No. It's, um, here's what's funny, and, and I love that you asked about it, because, you know, you're always kind of asked to compare the Hollywood movie-making version of putting on a show to the Broadway version. So me having come from the world of movies, like a lot of the – and storytelling that way, a lot of the people involved as we were putting the show together would like kind of take me aside and go, you know, there's no close-ups in the theater. There's no, you got to get used to it. There's no close-ups in the theater. The close-ups are when they sing. And I'm like, I know, I, I know. I picked this this up, you know? Yeah. And uh, and I, I loved leaning into it as, um, as a, you know, because I, I love knowing a character backwards and forwards and, you know, you feel like you fall in love with them when you hear the story and stuff. And the, the songs helped me do that. Mm. But what what it always was supposed to be is a show that, like, brought everybody together, especially the ones that had never been to a Broadway theater. Anyway, the point is, in movies, also, if something gets dinged early on, man... Everybody looks for another job. Everybody moves on. Yeah, Everybody's yeah. like picking up the phone and reading new scripts. And the wind shifts overnight. Yeah. So some of the reviews that dinged us on the Broadway show, it strengthened the cast. Hmm. The, uh, we'll show the, them. The, 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 young man, the young man who Casey likes who plays William, I'll never forget it. The first morning after some of, some of the reviews ran, some of them not bad for sure, but um, – here comes Casey running down the street, skipping, saying like, F them all, man, we're going to triple down. <laughs> yeah, this yeah. show is everything. And I looked at this kid and I'm just like, that is it. And that is unique to this situation. These people are there to put on a show and they triple down. Yeah. And I think, I think the reviews that were on the unkind side strengthened the fan base for the show. Mm. So people come in and they claim the show more than ever. And for a show that's all about fandom, you know, there was a line, there was a line that was in the that's still in the show and in the movie and everything, which is when Russell Hammond goes, We play for fans, not critics. Yeah. yeah. Um, it started to get applause. Yeah. I'm like, no, nah, you know, I'm I never wanted to be like the Bachman Turner Overdrive kind of musical where like you know yeah. the, the the fans are the only ones that understand because it's not like that but i did love the thing of of like let's put on a show and let's make it better yeah you know yeah. they push back we're gonna push back harder and that's the rock spirit and that's what you get every night at almost famous when we return we continue our conversation with cameron crow about critical response to art plus we talk about films like fast times at ridgemont high Jerry Maguire, and working with J.J. Abrams. That's coming up on Sound Opinions. And we are back. Let's get back into our conversation with Cameron Crowe. You know, I got to say this because, you know, you're, you're a guy who comes from criticism. I mean, you, 
were critiquing bands, you were covering them, and, and you kind of had the last word on a band when you would write a profile or whatever. And then you become, now as a movie maker, you're on the other side of that dynamic where people are critiquing your stuff. An artist. And Jim, and Jim and I, you know, write books, and it's interesting to be on the flip side of the critiquing, like your stuff is being critiqued. Yeah. And, you know, you got to have a thick skin, A, but B... Sometimes you can learn stuff if it's really a, an incisive thing. And C, I have found that I learned more about the critic than I did in my book, whatever. Mm. You know, it was like, I know, what they're, I know where this person is coming from when they're reviewing my stuff. I learned to, to sort of process yeah. it that way. Like, it's more about their feelings <laughs> than the actual yeah. thing being critiqued. And like, some of these people probably had a, had a chip on their shoulder, whatever. I don't know if you can see it from that perspective. You know, because well, you've been can, on, on I, the other I, side for so long. I also, I also know that time is 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 an important participant in all this stuff. Mm. When Fast Times at Ridgemont High first came out, you know who was actually violently um, troubled by the movie? Roger Ebert. Mm. Roger Ebert thought that we were actually taking advantage of young Jennifer Jason Lee. And the, the review was brutal and almost scary. I mean, especially since Jennifer Jason Lee was, was the major proponent of the raw stuff in the movie. Cause she wanted to like be real, man. And, and the fact is over time, Roger Ebert changed his opinion mm. and we talked about it. Similarly, Vanilla Sky came out and that was when like a bad review would, I would carry it around for days in my heart, you know, just like, what did, what happened? What did I do wrong? I hear about Vanilla Sky all the time now. The mm -hmm. people that love that movie are powerful about their advocacy for it. And what happens is they kind of don't remember some of the early feelings. Almost Famous, you know, it, it got good reviews, but it fell out of the theaters in days yeah, because I, I was gonna nobody came to see that. it. You know, I saw Almost Famous sitting beside Roger uh, in the screening room, you know, and we both loved it uh, and then went back to see it again. And, and, uh, uh, but, but, but people forget it came and went, right? Mm -hmm. Here you were, yeah. you know, bunch of uh, Academy Award nominations for Jerry Maguire, right? You, 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 you have put phrases in the popular lexicon, show me the money, right? And then Almost Famous comes out, oh, he's done. <laughs> Jim, it, it, Jim, it fell off the screen in theaters. It yeah. was just like nobody came, yeah. but they discovered it later. It's had this life. I mean, people are religious about that movie now. Well, the, the thing is, and I'm lucky that I've had enough of a kind of a uh, of a career where I've been able to do stuff for a while, which is like way beyond the wildest first dream I ever had, which was to like have a story in Rolling Stone. Yeah. But what what they what nobody can dispute is when a story is real and it's being told from the heart for all the right reasons, you're never going to lose. Mm -hmm. It will find. People, because it's there's a high pitched signal that goes out when something's being made from the right place for all the right reasons about the right things, and I know almost famous is that story because it's true. It happened mm -hmm. to me. It's my family. That is the guy that I met. That is the plane flight that almost went down. I mean, mm -hmm. it's like you can criticize 
it or you can embrace it, but it's, I got to say, it's authentic. Well, mm. and I, I admire your courage, Cameron, because the movie is much beloved and people have an ownership over it, right? And it would have been uh, okay to rely on what they call needle drop or jukebox, right? Just the songs yeah. that were in the movie. But your ambition, you sat down to write songs that would accompany, uh, you know, we hear Tiny Dancer, we hear Fever Dog, right? But, but other songs were added. And I was wondering what that songwriting experience was like for you, uh, working with with uh, a songsmith and, and adding these songs. Now you've got to like measure up. You better have new music that is going to be as strong as like Tiny Dancer. How do I do that? <laughs> well, Tom Kitt, who, who is the songsmith you're talking about, was such a fun collaborator because we had all the same references and He's a little more on the Billy Joel side, mm. and I'm more on the Led Zeppelin side. And where we come together, for example, on the Fever Dog with with a new verse that closes the show is is so fun. But he came in with a song called Morocco, mm. which was a cousin of Barcelona, that song that uh, I fell in love with of Sondheim's. Sondheim, yeah. And that was like the first song where I thought, okay, this this is an extension of the movie. You know, this is taking the romance of Penny Lane wanting to go to Morocco and turning it into a song. A new kind of life, a new kind of crowd. It feels so good to think it out loud. Morocco. That reminds me of what I fell in love with about Broadway musical compositions, you know. So we started there. We have a new song for Stillwater called I Come at Night, which I'm very proud of. Mm. <laughs> and, um, and the idea was to find that middle ground where you could play a game with the audience where they could say, well, is that an Elton John song that I never heard in the day? Yeah. Mm. <laughs> or is that a new song? <laughs> is that a Joni Mitchell song? No, that is a Joni Mitchell song. But the next song, huh. And so I, I liked having that element in the show. And it is... It's a fun game to play when you when you come see it. Mm -hmm. So you know it's kind of a living thing too. It, it, every night's a new night, right? It can change. Um, it's true. Are you, are you tweaking and and thinking about other iterations of how this thing will evolve? I mean, what where is it at in terms of your head? Is it is it finished or is it still ongoing? The process of making this this play. It's always it's uh, that's one of the fun things about it. It's like a movie, a movie you finish and pretty much they when they tell you like oh you can reshoot this or you can change this line and you can have them kiss at the end it really never changes the movie the movie pretty much is the movie you made and when you first see it that's how people see it around the world theater you can change night to night and and it does change what happens in the theater so that was a super fun thing for me as somebody that loves to change and try stuff when we're shooting and stuff it was like Every night, the cast would give you a new version of something or a new speech. And that was really cool. At a certain point when it opens, it freezes. And then your next chance to mess with it is when, when it's having its life beyond Broadway, where it is, is a regional mm. presentation. Yeah, like Chicago gets a lot of stuff on both sides of that before, before Broadway and then afterwards. So there's some things I'd love to do for sure. I mean, I'll always be tinkering. Like Billy Wilder was still tinkering with the apartment like when he was 93. And hmm. yep. <laughs> he, yep. he had no chance to change the apartment, nor should he have. But yeah, there are things I'd love to 
to mess around with and maybe try a new song and things like that. There was a song we cut that was Anika Larson, who plays um, my mom's character, Elaine, that got cut that I think a version of it can go back in. But, it, you know, it's always going to be the almost famous story. Mm-hmm. And so I like moving around kind of the furniture a little bit, but <laughs> the story's the story. Cameron Crowe footnote, also uh, not accorded the uh, accolades it deserved, your book with Billy Wilder. Right. Based on Truffaut Hitchcock, you know, two great yeah, filmmakers yeah. talking about the craft. Uh, Truffaut taking Hitchcock through. I love that book. Thanks, Jim. Thanks. Uh, to me, it was the film school that I never got, you yeah. know, that that I accidentally got or, or something. It's like he uh, he was supposed to play a part in Jerry Maguire forgot that he had said he wanted to play the part <laughs> hire hire an actor you're pissing on an old man's dreams leave me alone you know, the, the, <laughs> then the movie comes out and he i get this call from billy wilder saying i enjoyed your picture if you'd like to interview me for your column i'm available on wednesday <laughs> i'm like okay well i have no column yeah, yeah. but i'm going there on wednesday and i'm going to start interviewing him yeah and so we did that for a year and a half wow. i have uh, i show my journalism as literature class uh his version of the front page Right. Oh, wow. Which I think is, is vastly underrated, right? I mean, the yeah, play is the play, but the way he uh, filmed that mm. classic of Chicago journalism. Yeah. But that's, 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 that's straying far afield. Uh, you know, I wanted to ask you about your recent films. Um, you know, we had the Pearl Jam doc, and we had the, the Crosby doc. We, we had your foray into long-form television, which is uh, so exciting right now. You did it with roadies. And of course, you know, the filmography. What have you been learning and playing at these different forms? The documentary, the feature film, you know, the series on, on television. Great, great question. Different lessons for each one. Uh, for, for doing stuff for Broadway, being succinct is, mm. has been a, a great takeaway. Because I am the original, not the original guy, I'm one of the guys that will write a 200-page script yeah. when <laughs> 100 would be better. Right. Um, so the Broadway experience is like, you know, you don't have all night. Mm-hmm. You're not going to go shoot a whole bunch of stuff and use what works best. You got to, you know, shoot your shot right there. So mm-hmm. that's been really helpful. Focus. On what's what's coming next. Um, yeah, just boil it down to send it a few drafts beyond what you would have. Long form television, I'd love to try again. That was that was really J.J. Abrams who mm-hmm. who... He and I were both writing movies at Jim Brooks's company, Gracie Films, at the same time, and we, and so Wes Anderson was there at the same time, mm. and we all became buddies, you know. And um, at one point, JJ said, "You know what? I'm going to take a different road. I'm going to go do some other stuff, and I'm going to be my own producer." You know, I, I I love what you guys are doing here with Jim Brooks, but it's not the only road. And I mm. thought, well, that's a courageous thing. So he went off and basically started his – he did Felicity and stuff and started his whole career in TV. And later, um, Tom Cruise was interested in J.J. Abrams for Mission Impossible and um, had asked me about him. And and I raved about J.J. and J.J. came and met Cruise. And so I had this great relationship with J.J. through the years. And then one day he's like, if you do TV, let me do it with you. And um, so Rhodey's was kind of like holding hands with JJ and Mm. saying, like, let's learn what we can. Um, And what happened was 
you know, a lot of lessons were learned about like directing my own stuff was the call on some of those episodes of Roadies. And so I learned a lot about the strength of storytelling and how it happens in TV. And I feel like we were just kind of getting our rhythm when uh, the show ended. And that cast was wonderful. Yeah. So I love the idea of the ensemble. And so I want to use some of the theater ensemble actors mm. for our next movie because I just, I like working with the big ensemble and stuff. Yeah. But anyway, yeah, I think these these projects that you mentioned are all learning experiences. We Bought a Zoo was like, okay, what about telling a story for that kids would like mm-hmm. and understand as well as adults, you know? So the, And that was an interesting melding. And I thought Matt Damon, super underrated in that movie. Mm. Um, and that's another movie, Jim, that got dinged a little bit when it came out, or people laughed about the title. Mm-hmm. But I hear about We Bought a Zoo. Yeah. yeah. Tons. Yeah. Um, especially during the pandemic, people really found their way to We Bought a Zoo. It's amazing how much stuff got found during the pandemic. Yeah, <laughs> it's so um, tr- Yeah, yeah. What was tougher for you, uh, first movie or first play? Ooh, probably first movie because there were so many people there that the (laughs) film had gathered. So my friend Clay, who's our production designer now, he he was working with me as kind of an assistant at the time. Clay Griffith, I remember, I was in a trailer and, and it was the first day of shooting and Clay Griffith came in the trailer and he said, um, you know, you got to leave the trailer at a certain point. <laughs> like, really? Really? I have to. Just, yeah. yeah. And 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 so like we shot the first day and then I like went back to the trailer and and I was just sitting there going, "Oh my god, what's happening? These are the rapids of all time." And Clay comes and goes, "You know, you got to leave the trailer again and have lunch with the crew. It's really important." that you let the crew know that you're one of them. Uh-huh. And here, let me take your hand and lead you to the crew. <laughs> and you know what? It was a lesson that was so learned on that day because, you know, you talk about lessons learned. The crew will save you mm. or let you die when, yeah. you're, when you're making a movie because they are all there to make the best movie possible and their hearts are in it. And it does start at the top, whether mm-hmm. it's the top actor or the director – it sets a tone, and when the crew knows that you're with them and they're with you, man, it's movie-making sings. I can understand how that's daunting, though, Cameron. I, I can understand William knocking at the door, please let me in, I'm here to interview Black Sabbath, right? You're on the set. And are we talking wildlife, or are we talking... Uh, when we when you said first movie... Say anything. Say, say anything. Say anything. Right, I went to anything. say anything. Say anything. All right, so you're making say anything. And I can understand, like, there's grips and, and focus pullers and stuff mm. who've been in the this for 50 years, 40 years, right? You know, and you're like... Got to be intimidated. I'm like supposed to be their boss, mm. you know. Not to mention the actors. Yeah. Well, you know, you got to follow your heart, and sometimes, ultimately, you know when it's wrong, and you know when it's right. And a lot of times, things are in the gray area, and you got to hope that you got a scene right, and things like that. Even Billy Wilder said he figured out how to shoot the day's work at the corner of La Brea and Melrose as he drove home at the end of the day every day. <laughs> yeah. You know, you're always learning. Like on Roadies, Ron White, uh, the the comedian Ron White played, you know, 
the former Leonard Skinner roadie that's now kind of the patriarchal figure in, yeah. in that group of, of workers. He, he, I came up to him one day and I, I was trying to tell him the importance of Ronnie Van Zandt and Leonard Skinner. And, and he, he was doing a speech about Leonard Skinner mm-hmm. at the time. And I was like, you love this guy. When you talk about him, your soul rattles. You're, you're just like, you feel that music. You, when, he, when he died, part of you died. Mm. Like, you, do you know what I mean? And he said, no. <laughs> <laughs> and I go, well, do it faster. And he goes, that I understand. <laughs> so it's like, it changes every time. You know, yeah. It's whatever it takes to get the story told. And that's what makes it fun. Coming up next, we finish our conversation with Cameron Crowe by talking about his experience securing Peter Gabriel's In Your Eyes for the pivotal boombox scene for Say Anything. That's coming up on Sound Opinions. And we're back. This week, we're talking with Cameron Crowe. Let's get to some of his favorite music moments in his films. Well, Say Anything turned out okay. So many of these movies did. Greg and I have talked with you before. We've done our, you know, the, the iconic Cameron mm. music moments, right? The boombox, right? Uh, American Girl, so on and so forth. I wanted to ask you, flip it this time, and ask you a couple of m- moments that you think absolutely clicked Uh between soundtrack and images on the screen that you're proud of? Because I bet they're different than the ones all the fans have. Wow. Well, we talk about, we they are, some of them are the same, but um, we talk about We Bought a Zoo. There's a scene where, where Matt Damon is kind of summoning the memory of his wife. And um, he's in a kitchen and he's on the floor with his laptop and he's alone. And the laptop iPhoto library comes to life Mm. and there's a scene in the park where they're now surrounding him in this kitchen and he summons the memory in a, in a visceral way. And the characters, you know, it's a flight of fancy. The characters appear around him. And, um, I think that's one of the best scenes Mm. that I've ever been lucky enough to have in one of my movies. I mean, it still blows my mind to say one of my movies. You yeah, know? I'm, yeah. I'm still a, a so, rock critic for Cream. You know, yeah, it's yeah, like yeah. that's that's how I really feel sometimes. So many a lot of the time, from. Matt Damon uh, made that scene come to life. There's another scene in We Bought a Zoo where he has an argument with his with his son mm. about the the dream of starting the zoo, and I'm super proud of that scene. Mm. I also. Um, I also love the ending of Aloha, mm-hmm. which is, um, I think, some of Bradley Cooper's best work. You know, uh, so there's there's always things that give me a tingle, and and they do generally when you film them, and they they it survives that feeling, and that's when it's really great. I'll give you one from Fast Times. I I, I love Sean Penn in the Seven Eleven. Mm-hmm. With Brad Hamilton, uh, you know, where the robber's going to come in and they're going to throw the coffee. Yeah. And it's, it's basically the end of the movie. But the acting between Judge Reinhold and Sean Penn, young Sean Penn mm. and young 
Judge Reinhold at that counter is fantastic. Yeah, they're great. And so, yeah, I just like, I, I geek out over this stuff. People and, on ludes um, should not drive. <laughs> well, you know, that's a favorite. You know, that's a lot of us learn important lessons from watching these movies. Life lessons. <laughs> these are yes. life lessons. Yeah, not the ones my mom really wanted no, me to no. get out No, no, your mom there, would but... never discuss ludes with you, but uh, your movies would. But like I say, she wanted to be in those movies. Yeah, and, now, you and know, now you're on Broadway. So, Mom, it's wild. I did you justice. Yeah. Just to add this, like, we, we've we talked so much. I have talked so much about my mom just in, in, you know, talking about the play and everything. I feel like, and I and I and when I go to the, see the, the show, I, like, talk to people. I love talking to everybody and, you know, signing playbills if they want them signed and all that stuff. I just, I love it. You don't get to do that after you screen a movie yeah, generally. You don't meet anybody. So, so, but they'd be like, yeah, you know. Your mom really seems like she was a special person. And I'm like, yeah. And if you really want to meet her, like if you want to see her unguarded, who she really was, put on Jerry Maguire or when Jerry Maguire is on your TV some night and it comes to the um, scene where Tom Cruise comes to say, you know, um, you complete me and all that stuff. In front to, of the support Zellweger, group of divorced women. In front of the support group. Um, he, he, he pleads for... He, he waves the flag for love at that key moment. But before he walks in, my mom forgets that there's a camera. She's part of the divorced women's group that's in that living room when Tom Cruise comes and has his reconciliation with Renee. So my mom has now taken over this group of comedian and actors and, and, and is now counseling them like she did as a college counselor. And she's talking about the neuropathways of the brain and stuff. And it's like, that's her. That's the unguarded Alice Crow. And so I'm just, if you, you ask about things I'm proud of, I'm so proud of that because, you know, of all the stuff that's been maybe influenced by my mom, that's pure her. And it lives forever in, in, in one of Tom Cruise's best scenes. Yeah, it's a, yeah, so yeah. it's a great scene. Walk away, right? Walk away. Yeah, I think that the problem is, you know, Alice, you were saying earlier something about the biorhythms. Or... <laughs> I was saying that the neural pathways are set, and that's why it's hard for people to change. That's why behavior doesn't change very often. I got one more musical question for you. I was listening to an interview with Tarantino actually this morning about music, his, you know, how he picks music for movies. And he said, there are certain songs that I, I have to have for a movie like he he said yeah. in this interview i hadn't heard this before for reservoir dogs that he needed to have a stuck in the middle with you sure. uh, by steelers wheel in that movie he had a thirty thousand dollar music licensing budget he had to spend the entire licensing budget <laughs> yeah, for that, that song. <laughs> song but he said it's so important Worth i have it. to have it whatever at price and then he paid for the other songs by they they got a, a soundtrack deal and they said, we'll pay the artist this way. So oh, he wow. was able to manage it. But that song was so important that he was able to, he said, I have to blow my whole budget to get that song for this movie. And obviously, an iconic scene. He knew what he was doing. Was there ever a moment for you like that when you were making a movie? Because the songs are so integral to what you're doing that you said, I have to have this song in this movie here, and I'll pay whatever it takes to get it. Many, many times that's happened. And um, the, probably the, the best example of that <laughs> was there was only one song that was ever going to work for the boombox scene in Say Anything. Mm. 
there was only one song. We tried everything. There were even songwriters that came in and tried to write an original song for that, which is it, your, Jim, it's your worst version of the Broadway thing. <laughs> two, two guys came in and they, they wrote this song that's like, I hold my heart in the box ahead of my head. And you're like, oh, God, it's the scene's going to get wow. cut. We don't have a song for it. And then uh, I was driving into the editing room, and I the only tape I had, like when I reached for a tape, was this tape from uh, my wedding, just like a wedding mix. And In Your Eyes came on. And I'm surprised I didn't get in a car accident. I was started racing to the editing room because it was all there. Mm. Like I drive off in my car and about instincts, and it was just like, oh, my God. So we, I raced into the editing room. We put it on. It's perfect. And so then we began to, uh, Peter Gabriel hadn't given his stuff for movies, I, I don't think, at that time. So we began the journey to try and get in your eyes. And it's a much longer story, but he turned it down. I sent the tape. He turned it down. Right about the same time, Stevie Ray Vaughan was going to score Say Anything for a minute. And then that fell away. And and so like all these things were starting to cave in musically. And then um, it became known that Peter Gabriel thought it was the John Belushi movie Wired <laughs> that wanted In Your Eyes. And so, so Rosanna Arquette actually did a little work for us. She, I think they were, she was his partner. They were together at the mm -hmm. time. And she was advocated for watching the tape of Say Anything which he had gotten confused with Wired. So he watched Say Anything and then said, yeah, okay, let's figure out if there's a way to, to do this. But in the meantime, to over-answer your question, Mark Knopfler had a conversation with Peter Gabriel where he said, essentially, they really want that song? You got them over a barrel. <laughs> Ask for an enormous amount. I'm telling you to this day, money I for can't nothing. Listen to, can't, what was I that can't song? listen to money for nothing <laughs> or any Dire Straits thing except Mark Knopfler's score for Local Hero. That, That's a that good one. On. Yeah, you're right. But like he, so he talks Peter Gabriel into asking for the world, and uh, what happened was a, a long negotiation happened where like we found money in the publicity budget and everything to pay for In Your Eyes, which you know obviously was worth it and everything. But there, I have a little twinge every time I see a picture of Mark Knopfler, like. You know, yeah. you subversive, you know, <laughs> yeah. masquerading as a sensitive, quiet man. Right, you, right. You, you, wait, you lawyer, you. What's Knopfler done in the last decade? You're on Broadway. Oh Your filmography is up to like a dozen movies, you know. We, you know, stick around long enough, you have the last laugh. It was only that song that was ever yeah. going to work. I'm telling you, it was a, it was a, it it had was to a be crime that song. scene. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I can see that. I can see and that. it worked. You, you were right. We could talk to Cameron Crowe all freaking day. Uh, <laughs> thank you, Cameron, for taking some time for us. Congratulations on the Broadway success. You know we're friends. Thank you. Brothers. You know, and, and there's a, you know, here's a good way to end. 
Lester's in the air again, isn't he? I mean, that moment it's on true. Fallon when the whole cast came and performed uh, for Jimmy Fallon, uh, uh, almost famous, uh, you know, and, and Carmel and I are sitting watching. We'd seen Rob Coletti in San Diego, right? Oh, he's not, he's not singing. And then he pops up mm. and he stole the whole moment, right? He's on Broadway. You cast one of the actors of the last half century, you know, as Lester. Um, you know, there was a play that started in San Diego that went to New York, that went to Chicago, you know, how to be a rock critic. It seems, you know, and it seems to me, and I don't know why, I haven't been able to articulate it, despite having lectured at Grossmont Junior College on the subject, um, but it <laughs> seems like we need Lester now. That honesty, brutal at times, but also humor, uh, talking about our culture at this moment more than we've ever needed him. Don't you think? Yeah, absolutely. There's a reason why he's in the conversation. It's it, it it's it's gonna happen because he he was far ahead of his time, and he actually has a voice that speaks to right now. Yeah, and you know it for sure, Jim. And I just feel like it just feels right for now. Yeah, you know whether we're doing something or anybody's doing something. It's just it's the it's the right flag to be waving right now. His his voice. Um, was powerful and true and authentic and fun. Yeah. And, um, you know, Viva Lester. Yeah. yeah. Well, the great Cameron Crowe, uh, a hit on Broadway, almost famous. And uh, we look forward to whatever you bring to the screen next, whichever, my TV Thanks, screen, man. the big screen. Next year. All right. Oh, yeah. screen. Come on. I'll be back. I'll be back for a tray. That's sound opinions. Okay. All right. Oh, yeah, yeah. going. Thank you, Cameron. Cool, you guys. Thanks, Thank Cameron. Thank you so much. That wraps up our latest chat with Cameron Crowe, and now we want to hear from you. What's your favorite Cameron film and why? Leave us a voice message on our website, soundopinions.org. Greg, what do we got on the show next week? Next week, Jim, a deep dive into one of our favorite new bands, uh, Dry Cleaning, a conversation with that band. And don't forget to check out our bonus podcast feed wherever you get your podcasts. Good stuff. Dry Cleaning is fantastic. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this program belong solely to Sound Opinions and not necessarily to Columbia College Chicago or our sponsors. Thanks, as always, to our Patreon supporters. Sound Opinions is produced by Andrew Gill, Alex Claiborne, and our associate producer, Sol Delgadillo. Our Columbia College intern is Lauren Holt, and our social media consultant is Katie Cott. Don't press me. You, you, you. Press me.